Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Former Fordham professor Dr. Olivia Hooker lives an extraordinary life of inspiration. She was the first African-American woman to enlist in the U.S. Coast Guard during World War II. She obtained both a master's and Ph.D. in psychology. And before residing in Greenberg, New York, Dr. Hooker lived through one of the most horrific race riots in U.S. history, the Tulsa, Oklahoma race riots of 1921. More recently, the New York State Senate passed a legislative resolution honoring Dr. Hooker for her contribution to the women's movement and the civil rights movement. We'll hear from Dr. Hooker shortly. But first, I spoke with Senator Andrea Stewart-Cousins of the 35th District, who proposed the resolution. Senator, welcome. Thank you for having me, Robin. Thank you. So tell me about your relationship with Dr. Hooker. How did you two meet? Well, you know, Dr. Hooker has been a... um I'd say a known jewel in Westchester County, and ever since I've been involved, Dr. Hooker's been involved. She's been uh, at all of the the important causes, whether it's education. She's always been um, donating her time. She's always been one of those highly respected elders, and it wasn't until, however, um, a Black History Month presentation in the Ossining Public Library, where Dr. Hooker was on hand uh, to answer questions after the showing of a documentary, Before They Die, which recounts the um, journey of Dr. Olivia Hooker. And uh, at that point, there were about 100 uh, survivors of the Tulsa, Oklahoma race riots in 1921 that I realized the depth and the breadth of what it was that she brought to us in terms of being living history, being at 95, still willing to to fight the good fight for the right causes and willing to be a role model and just someone who continued to give. I was... Uh, I was I was really taken uh, aback by the story, and unfortunately, um, the documentary uh, tells us that although they brought the case for uh, restitution to the to the Supreme Court, uh, the case was never heard. And so, the, where there used to be a hundred or so survivors of those race riots, it's down to around seventy some odd because they are obviously in 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 their eighties, nineties, uh, and even one was one hundred and three. Right. But yet the journey continues for them. So I thought that our community and the state could benefit from knowing that Dr. Hooker not only uh, went through a very, very uh, awful period, but um, never stopped believing in New York State and in her country, because, by the way, she was the very first African-American woman to join the Coast Guard. And it seems that uh, Dr. Hooker has a very positive attitude, even after all the tragedy that has happened in her life and all the triumph. She still holds a very positive attitude, wouldn't you say? Oh, she was amazing. She um, she consented to speak with our interns. You know, in the legislature on mm-hmm. both the Assembly and Senate side, we have young people who come from local uh, uh, colleges who intern with us and learn something about the legislative process. That it didn't matter what obstacles they they faced, that they would be able to find the tools to overcome. And they also she also told them that. Sometimes life doesn't make sense, and you learn things going through, and you think that there's no reason that you've learned these things. And then suddenly there's a moment 
where the resources that you had in reserve are available to you, and it all makes sense. It all comes together. It all comes together. (laughs) Senator Stuart Cousins, what prompted you to introduce the resolution to honor Dr. Hooker, and specifically, what does this resolution do? Well, the resolution is going into our records. Uh, It is part of our history now as a capital, and it resolved that this woman, among women in this state, deserves a place in state legislative history. And I think Dr. Hooker, even at 95, was very, very honored. It also, again, um, allowed me to bring one of my constituents here who could be a role model for everyone. Not only the 10 women that served in the state legislature, and there are 10 of us out of 62 members, but also because she is a woman who who volunteered to serve her country and broke barriers in the armed forces, I thought it was important. And even it was so great to see so many of my, my colleagues on both sides of the aisle, uh, male and, and female alike, just coming to pay homage to a woman who had uh, gone through so much and was willing still to give so much. And frankly, I think the more people hear about people like Dr. Olivia Hooker, the more, again, life uh, is put into perspective. And we realize that um, you can be dealt some pretty tough blows, but um, with with faith and, and you know, education and, and recognizing opportunities and a positive attitude and, and a generous spirit, you will be able to go on. Uh, Senator, I want to say thank you so much You're for taking time welcome. to talk with me. It's really nice to talk to you, too, Robin. Thank you. That was Senator Andrea Stewart-Cousins representing the 35th District. I'm Robin Shannon. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV. We just heard about Dr. Olivia Hooker. Now we hear from her. Dr. Hooker starts by recounting what the racially and politically tense atmosphere of Tulsa, Oklahoma was like before the race riot of May 1921 that left thousands of people homeless, hundreds dead, and started a crusade that would last almost a century. Well, before the riot, there were very prosperous, I mean, not high rises, but very prosperous businesses there. It was really like a self-contained community in that you didn't need to go downtown for anything. You you could buy anything you needed right in your own neighborhood. They called it the Black Wall Street, correct? Yeah, well, I, they say that Booker, uh, Booker Washington called it Black Wall Street when he visited there one time, and uh, the name stuck. And actually, as I say, it was just a nice, prosperous neighborhood. <laughs> and most of the people, I'm sure knew that there was prejudice and racism. But I was a little girl, and I didn't know because everybody treated everybody well. And you were I, like six years old at the time? Uh-huh. And so I didn't know that there were people that would do hateful things to folks who had not bothered them at all. And I think that's why it was such a shock to me when we got up on the morning of the riot, I heard these noises hitting the house, blip, 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 like that. And I said to my mother, how can it be hailing when the sun is shining brightly? And she said, oh, it's not hail. 
and she said, come with me. And she took me to the front uh, living room to peep through the blinds up on top of the hill. We were the last house on the hill. And uh, she said, you see that thing up there? That is a machine gun. Mm. And you see the American flag on the gun, and that means your country is shooting at you. Well, this is a total surprise to me. And so she took took me back and put me under the big oak big round oak table she had and she put one child under each one of the table legs so that we wouldn't be killed, I guess. And she was putting water on the house to keep it, you know, so it wouldn't burn no matter what they did. And uh, she was pouring water on all the windowsills and things like that. Dr. Hooker, what started these race riots? Well, the story is that a young man who was a window washer got on the elevator, but the elevator wasn't lined up, and he stumbled against the elevator operator, who was a white 17-year-old girl. And she screamed, so people concluded that he attacked her, and he was put in jail. And the crowds were revved up, and actually there was a newspaper, but nobody can find the copy of the newspaper that said, Negro to be lynched tonight. Mm-hmm. So, the And black, this is without a trial. Yeah, so the black soldiers, uh, who had just come back from World War One, fighting for democracy, and they said, no, we're not going to let that happen. They took their rifles and went down to the jail to protect the young man so he could have a court trial. And uh, as they were down there, they were outnumbered greatly by, you know, people who wanted to do bad things. And the sheriff said he didn't need these soldiers that were volunteering to come and protect him. And meanwhile, the people in the crowd, I guess, got a little restless, and one of them asked a, a man, what are you going to do with that gun? And the guy told him, if I have to use it, I'll use it. And so then he shot that person, and that started the you know, the fighting, actually. We don't know how many people were killed that night. but I heard somewhere between 300 to 1,000. Yeah, well, yeah that, that's a good estimate, probably. But at any rate, the next morning was when they decided to pillage and burn all the all the black people out of their homes. And so your parents also had a business, correct, that yeah, was, yeah, was my destroyed? Yeah, had, had a department store, and uh, it was doing very well. However, because a department store, you stock your store for fall in the spring, so that's on credit. And uh, my father, after the riot, because his store was reduced to just nothing but rocks and bricks. And uh, he discovered that the safe was still intact. He didn't know. It was so big they couldn't carry it away in their little horses and buggies. And uh, it was intact. So he didn't have money, but he had war bonds. And he had... uh, other people's money in there, people who had a little 
cash to save would come to and say, Mr. Hooker, I put my name and address on here, and you keep it in your safe till I need it. So a lot of people did that just, you know, to stay safe from robbers. And uh, Papa didn't put his own money in the safe because he would send my sister Irene downtown to the bank and uh, to put the cash from the store in there. However, she was never robbed because a highwayman wouldn't rob a 12-year-old girl. <laughs> that was pretty smart of your dad. <laughs> so that's why he sent her instead of one of the clerks from the store. Dr. Hooker, how many brothers and sisters did you have? Yeah, we have three sisters and one brother. My brother, at the time of this Holocaust thing, was eight years old. And so when they took all of the black men saying they were going to stop the fighting and disarm, there was a militia, uh, state militias like state troopers, and they said they were going to stop the fighting, disarm everybody. So they took all the men and my brother to a holding place and disarmed them. Later, when Walter White came, probably the next day, from the NAACP in New York, he found out that they took the guns away from blacks and then gave them to other people, saying, well, there's nothing out there. We took all the males, nothing out there but women and children. So, you know, you can go and do what you want to do to run them out of town, so... So that was their plan. Their plan was, was to move plan. you out of, out and, of town. But people had stockpiled weapons in their basements over the other side of town that we didn't know about, and we didn't know what they were planning. You know, they were waiting for an incident they could use in order to do what they wanted to do without saying to people, we want to... Uh, move you out and we'll give you so many dollars. They didn't want to do that. They just want to chase you out and take over what you had. So that's how that happened. Dr. Hooker, what ended up happening to the young man who who accidentally fell into the young white woman and now was, was his well, life was threatened? After that, the young woman absolutely refused to testify against him because he didn't do anything to her. He stumbled. So they didn't have a case, and he was dismissed. He was 18 at the time, or 19, and I think he lived to be a you know a full-grown man, but I think he left Tulsa. He didn't stay there. And years later, you decided to um, take part. It was 19, what, in 1997, uh, you helped form the Tulsa Race Riot Commission to investigate the Tulsa race riots. So why so many years later was it important to investigate the riots and, and submit a proposal for reparations? Well, what happened before that was that a young black uh, congressman, you know, state congressman, uh, had, his name was Ross, had gotten the state legislature of Oklahoma to do a complete study of that incident. And he had gotten, they had a report, and it showed that we were victims, not aggressors, and that... Uh, the whole thing, you know, really we should have been protected, but of course we were not protected. Because uh, your, your town was destroyed? Was your town destroyed completely? Oh, yes, it was destroyed. Plus, I thought it was high time that somebody uh, 
would make sure that America knows about this thing that's been kept secret all these years. And uh, I said, we all need to, to take part in this because it's a chance to get the truth out. I mean, by law, it should be told the same way the Holocaust in Germany is told to children. And they should know these things happened in this country. And maybe it would, you know, it might motivate them, you know, to be a little more socially sensitive. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUVFM. I'm Robin Chan, and I'll be right back to continue my conversation with Dr. Olivia Hooker about her inspiring and extraordinary life and a recent resolution honoring her contributions to the women's and civil rights movement. A lot of us think nothing of having a drink after a long day, a glass of wine with dinner, drinks with colleagues after work, or a nightcap before bed. But what happens when one leads to two, and two leads to too many, and gets out of control? Hi, I'm George Boldarki. Coming up on this morning Cityscape, a Manhattan resident talks candidly about being a recovering alcoholic. That's Cityscape, this morning at 7.30, right here on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Dr. Hooker, what happened right after you graduated? What, what was your well, next step? Well, from Ohio State, uh, you see, the Depression was still on. I mean, we went through to school. And, I mean, they were just bare bones. Nobody had money. We couldn't afford to buy the textbooks that were assigned. But what we did was the whole group would get together and decide, you buy with one book and I buy one and the next one. And we shared our books and actually, you couldn't even afford lunch money. You bought a Mr. Good bar, which had plenty of peanuts in it, and ate that for lunch. And then when you got home, you, you had a snack, you know. But uh, very few of us could just walk in the lunchroom and plunk down money for a tray full of food. <laughs> And it seems like there is um, something that's consistent in what you're what you're talking about, whether it be the community coming together after uh, the Tulsa riots, or uh, you and your friends coming together to share um, share each other's books and 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 helping each other. There seems to be a real community that each one was helping the next one was helping the next one. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, and uh, we wanted everyone to learn and graduate and get a job. And, you know, we wished each other well, and uh, there wasn't a cutthroat competition that there seems to be now in schools, but uh, it worked for us, and we could see the results, because at first I thought, having graduated, that I couldn't find a job. I, I applied a lot of places, but they weren't hiring people who looked like me, and then finally... Uh, and what did you graduate with? What did you have your degree in? In elementary education. But I had a second major. I, I took my second major in psychology. And uh, I needed it in teaching third grade because the principal that finally you know, agreed that I could have the vacancy at his school. So I had 48 children my first year of teaching. And of course... You know which eight they chose to send me. The eight troublemakers in their class came to me. Well, that was a class that would baffle a saint. So how did you go from um, teaching these, uh, uh, should I say, what's a nice way to say, 
the recalcitrant children. <laughs> How did you go from teaching to uh, deciding to uh, join the Coast Guard? In 1944, the Navy decided they would take black women. So I waited to see who might join because we had campaigned for the other services to accept black women. At that time, only the Army had what they call WAX, Women's Army Corps. But uh, the others didn't have any of us. So I waited, and I didn't see anybody joining up. And then I thought, well, maybe if I join, and if I live, <laughs> somebody else might come. So that was my, my purpose in sending in my papers. And when I, I sent them in to the Navy, and they sent them back and said, there's a technicality. So... I went over the papers. I didn't see anything wrong. and I. Do you think it was just them trying to keep you out? I sent them back the second time to the Navy. Got another letter saying there's still a technicality. So I thought, well, I don't see anything wrong. And at that time, James Forrestal was secretary of the Navy. And uh, so I wrote to him and I said, you tell me what the technicality is. And being Secretary of the Navy, he wrote back and said, I don't see any technicality. I'd be happy to have you enlist. So I thought, well, all right, that's an invitation. I'll go over to the Coast Guard, which is in the Navy during times of war, and I won't be under those two ladies that have a technicality. <laughs> I'm Robin Shannon speaking with Dr. Olivia Hooker about her achievements and contributions to both the women's movement and the civil rights movement. Dr. Hooker, did you face less discrimination in the Coast Guard? Yes. Uh, actually, I didn't experience much discrimination in the Coast Guard because they had a rule for everything, and uh, people pretty much obeyed the rules. And... Uh, but had you gone into the Navy, you might have faced uh, more challenges. I might have, if because I didn't find out. I was just too naive. I didn't find out what the technicality was, was my skin color. I, I thought there was something else wrong, you know. And uh, so they did have black women in the waves later on. Now, were you in there with other women, or were you in, there with, in the U.S. Coast Guard? Because you were the first African-American woman to join the Coast Guard. So were you... Yeah, as an enlisted woman. Now, they did have six black nurses, and they were ensigns. They were officers, but they were stationed in New York at one clinic. So what did you do while you were in the Coast Guard? So, well, first you go through basic training, and uh, then you have a chance to choose a school to go to, two schools that were still open at this late date when I was I was inducted in 1945, and the war was kind of winding down over in Europe. And uh, so the schools that were open were the Yeoman School, which trained you in Greg Shorthand and uh, typing and stuff. And then they had storekeeper schools open, but I didn't want to be a, scar a storekeeper because I intended to go to graduate school, and I thought the shorthanded would do me more good for taking lectures. So I, I chose yeoman school. So you went from, uh, even though you were in the Coast Guard, you knew you wanted to go back to teaching. 
you were saying how you were preparing yeah. for that. So yeah, I wanted to go uh, to get a master's degree in education, and I thought that would be better. And I was determined to get into Columbia University on the GI Bill, you know, and work on. So I was pushing so I could find a place to live in New York So because they didn't take us in the dormitory too, you know, willingly at Columbia. And, well, they said they had no room. It's possible. And I said, well, I have to get to New York. So you decided to uh, go to Columbia, and mm -hmm. you earned your Ph.D. where? No, no, I own, earned the master's at Columbia, mm -hmm. in, at Columbia Teachers College. And then I tried to get a job. And finally, you know, I wrote to Letchworth Village, which is a state school for slow learners. And I applied for a teaching job because I saw I wasn't going to get a psychology job. And the, the director at that time of Letchworth Village was a very fine Dartmouth graduate, an elderly man, and he wrote back and he said, with all your training, you don't want to just come here and teach. He said, but there's an internship in psychology, and maybe you could become an intern here and, you know, work in psychology. So that's what I did. When I finished that, I was given a job way upstate in Albion, New York which is a small-town, farmer, retired farmer's town then, and they were determined to keep that town as white as snow. And so... And here you come. <laughs> and here I came. So I had to fight so many battles in that town. Everybody knew me, of course, because there's only brown face in town, but uh, they, you know, got to take it for granted if you don't serve her, she's going to sue you or something. <laughs> so, Now, Dr. Hooker, most women um, in this time period were told, okay, it's fine to get an education and it's fine to get a job, but you also have to get married. Did you ever get married? I never did because the one person I thought I might share my life with was driving up from Atlanta. He was a vice president in, in a company that had offices in New York. And he was driving from Atlanta to New York and died of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. So that ended that. And I thought, well, I don't know anybody else who has the sensitivity and that I think I could spend my life with. So I didn't, I didn't engage in any long-time commitments <laughs> because I, I uh, would have liked you know, to have married and had children and so forth and so on, but it did work out. So my godchildren, their parents shared them with me, so that worked out very well. So, Dr. Hooker, uh, State Senator Andrea Stewart-Cousins introduced a resolution honoring you for your achievements and contributions to both the women's movement and the civil rights movement. What does this honor mean to you? Well, I was absolutely astonished when her office called and asked me if I'd be willing to come to Albany because it was Women's History Month and they wanted to honor me, they had arranged for me to talk to the interns and then go to the Senate session. Then they, they had the resolution read on the floor and named the day 
as Olivia Hooker Day, and I I was astonished because I said, well, if this gets in the press, I'll hear from people that I didn't know were still alive, you know. I thought that was a, a very nice day. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind me asking, how old are you? I'm 95. 95. And when's your birthday? Mm-hmm. Your birthday? My birthday is on Lincoln's birthday. And, you know, when I was a little girl living in Kansas, they make a big thing out of Lincoln's Day, you know. And so I always enjoyed my birthday because there would be a a waffle dinner or something at church and all that sort of thing. So I sort of shared Lincoln's glory (laughs) by being born on his day. (laughs) And my final question is, what did you think of the documentary about the Tulsa race riots? Well... I kept telling there's too much of me in there. Why don't you leave some out? But still and all, I think it was a good thing at least to let people know what happened and to make them more watchful when they see signs of distress up between human beings, regardless of what color they are or what language they speak. We need to get along and we need peace very much in this country and uh, not to be separating each other into little groups and fighting the others. We need peace. And so I try to stress whatever chance I have to emphasize peace. Thank you very much, Dr. Olivia J. Hooker. Oh, you've been very kind. You sure I could make you a cup of tea or something? My thanks to Dr. Olivia Hooker and Senator Andrea Stewart-Cousins. I'd also like to thank my engineer, Jeremy Rayner. Next week, Mary Wilson is your host. Stay with us. George Bodarki and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.